Yo, mic check, mic check. Yeah, here you go. Oh, nah, he, he over here. Yeah, I heard he got that hot new thing. It's called Switch. Let's get it going. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and that's Will Smith. You're listening to rapping the song Switch. And, well, you heard the last story. If you didn't go to Our American Network, Org. You heard the last story about Will Smith talking about how he became the star of the 1990s hit TV show, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. A little bit of luck, a little bit of grit, and, well, Quincy Jones pushing him right into it and doing the sale for him. You learn a lot about Quincy in that particular story. Quincy was more than a musician, obviously. A lot more than a musician, a heck of a salesman in the end. Now we're about to listen to Smith tell a more sober story from his youth as he made the switch in his freshman year from an almost all-white Catholic school into an all-black public school. Here's Will Smith. Uh, so I, I went to a Catholic school uh, up to eighth grade with uh all white kids and probably two or three black kids but you know predominantly white school and then i went to my neighborhood high school in ninth grade that was 99 percent black kids um so the first day that I, I walk in to ninth grade i walked into the lunchroom and you know it was like 500 kids and for, to this day, I don't know why I did this. I'm sure it was because I was I was nervous, and you you know I got the, I have a thing with fear. I don't like being scared, so I'm sure I was. I walked in, uh, I looked around, and I said, "Excuse me, can I have your attention? Can I have your attention, please? He's here. He's here right now. Thank you. Thank you." And people was kind of looking, and there was this one dude, and he was sitting there. And he looked up to me, he said, man, don't nobody give a that you here, right? And I said, hey, just give me 10 minutes, your girl gonna care, right? And he was like, all right. And you gotta watch that nod. That nod is not a good nod. He was like, and I was like, okay. So I went, so I'm walking up the steps, we're out of the lunchroom and I forgot about it. So we're going and I'm walking up the steps and he had taken one of those combination locks and he put the lock in the palm of his hand and put, his, put the, uh, the loop around his knuckle. And he was holding the lock in his hand. And as I was walking up the steps, he cracked me in the side of my head with the lock. And I went down, I was out, I don't remember nothing. I still got the lump on my head. You can't see it because I got my hair, but I still like, there's still a lump. So I remember I fell down, I hit my mouth on the steps, all of that stuff. You know, so I went up, so I'm in the principal's office, all of that, the police come, and I got the ice on my lips, and I'm, I'm sitting in the principal's office. And my father comes in, he sees me, and, and you know, I'm telling the story, now the police are there. And I remember I saw this kid, they put him in handcuffs and took him out of the school. And I'm looking, sitting in the principal's office, and I'm watching the police take him out and put him in the back of a police car. And I just couldn't believe it had escalated to a kid being removed from, from school. And 
I was laying in my bed that night and I was just feeling like And I had the recognition that I had caused this kid to throw his life away, right? And he was kicked out of school and I never knew what, what happened to him, but I, I, I have a sense that it, it, it didn't go well beyond there. And I felt a deep sense of regret and a deep sense that I had caused an emotion in a person that made them do that. And that, that feeling of regret turned into a sort of a fear of how much power I had. And I was like, everything I say and do has that kind of effect on other human beings. And in that moment, I decided that I would never walk into a room and do anything other than inspire and uplift and enlighten people and help people to be the greater versions of themselves. And I would never do anything that would cause people to, or to rile up the darkest, dirtiest parts of people. I only wanted to enliven and enlighten and inspire. And I remember laying in my bed that night and I made that promise to myself and I made that promise to God. And it's something that has completely shaped how I approach people, how I approach moments, how I walk into rooms, how I deal with every human being on this earth. To him and to his family, I want to send uh, my deepest apologies and I hope my, my words and my sincerity uh, reach you and I, I hope your life uh, has gone well for you. And that about tells you everything you need to know about Will Smith as a young man, as a grown man. Feelings of regret about his words. By the way, we heard this from Pat Williams over and over during our leadership summit. And Pat, one of the great writers on leadership in this country, and we heard about it from Bear Bryant. We heard about it from the athletes. So many people are words. They're so powerful, and they can determine outcomes. And for a young man to understand this at the ripe old age of perhaps 14, and to understand that he caused this, most of us would have just blamed the kid who hit us over the head. And I, most adults would blame the kid who hit us over the head with a lock for a joke. But my goodness, it's animated everything about Will Smith's life. Look at his work. Look at where he stands. Look at how white America, black America, and everybody in between in the world views Will Smith. What he puts out is what he gets back, folks. This is Lee Habib. And Sly Stallone's story, Denzel Washington's, Gene Wilder's, Al Pacino's. We have so many of these on OurAmericanNetwork.org. And it's life lessons from these folks, too. They're not like the other kids, a lot of these men and women that we hear from. Will Smith's story, here on Our American Stories.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our On Leadership series. And our own Alex Cortez brings us the story of someone named David Wilson, whom you likely don't know, but you'll be glad you met him. I was literally born with a golden spoon in my mouth. I was born in Iowa on a farm, the oldest of five kids. My dad worked at John Deere Waterloo Tractor Works. My mother sold Stanley Home Products on a party plan. I was lucky enough to have the opportunity that we didn't have anything. <laughs> you know, we, did, we didn't have anything. Whatever we wanted, we had to earn. It was a terrific lesson that sadly, it's difficult to pass on to your children when you become successful because you realize you don't want your children to have to sort of grow up the way you did until you figure out that the way you grew up was pretty damn special. So uh, Iowa was a great place to be from. It, it's a place where you, you learn by example that you have to plant in the spring if you're gonna reap in the fall. And you don't really see the rewards of plowing and disking and planting and praying for rain until six months later when you pick the corn or, or harvest the wheat or the soybeans. So it's a terrific place to grow up. Nature sort of shows you that you have to work to be successful and even you, you can't see the goal. You have it in your mind but the goal is to have a good harvest, but you have to do a lot of things to prepare for it and then hope that it comes to you in the end. As a youngster, I had the opportunity to earn money in four seasons. You could rake leaves in the fall and shovel snow in the winter, uh, rake leaves in the spring and mow grass in the summer. At that time, most women didn't work, but the man didn't if he couldn't get out of his driveway. I mean, the snow overnight, you know, I used to pray for snow. It'd be two, three, four feet of snow in northeastern Iowa. And so you had to get up at five o'clock in the morning when it was still dark and go knock on doors because the guy couldn't go to work if he couldn't get his car out of the garage. True, but who wants someone knocking on their door at 5 a.m.? A guy who's got to be work at seven o'clock, that's who. <laughs> yeah, a guy, a guy who wants to be work at seven o'clock is happy to have somebody. Are you going to shovel your snow? No, I will. Okay. The best part of that was, is it really taught me a lot about business. First of all, I had to go knock on the door. You know, can I shovel your driveway? No. Can I shovel your driveway? No. Can I shovel your driveway? How much? A dollar. No, I'll give you 50 cents. Okay. So you had to ask for the order. Yeah, then you had to negotiate the price. Then you had to perform, and then, then you went to school. You know, then it was, you know, and then it was 8 o'clock in the morning. You had to get it done before school started. And then you come back after school and try to collect your 50 cents. Well, Walt's not home yet. Okay, well, I know. He, but he got to work because I shoveled his driveway this morning. Okay, well, when he comes home at 7 o'clock, I'll make sure he puts out the 50 cents for you. And then on night and weekends, the five kids would farm. We, had, we farmed, and we had uh, cattle, horses, and we grew corn, so... It was a good seven-day-a-week job, yeah. Uh, yeah. So if you don't know any better, you think that's how kids grow up, and pretty much everybody in northeastern Iowa, that's how they were growing up. When I went to college, I had to pay my own way through college. My mother paid for room, board, and books for the first semester and said, if you like it, you'll figure out how to, how to finish. And I did. I worked initially at a Montgomery Ward store selling shoes nights and weekends. And then I worked in a manufacturing plant in a factory, second shift. I mean, a full 40-hour week from 3 o'clock to 11 o'clock. Then uh, an earthen dam broke and flooded that factory, put five feet of water in it, and they laid off six, 700 people. Everybody lost their job. And so I looked in the paper the next day, and there was an opening at a car dealership, a nighttime job at a car dealership. The job description was 
go pick up telephone company vans. A 40 Conaline van was the first van there ever was. This was in uh, 1968, and a job entailed going to the telephone company, picking up a van, driving to the dealership, changing the oil, changing the filter, lubing the car, the grease zerks, washing it inside, washing it outside, and that paid $5. Now, the minimum wage was $1.35, and I could do one an hour. So I was making triple minimum wage, working four hours a night, making 20 bucks, 100 bucks a week. I mean, that was, that was actually good pay for a college student in 1968. So <clears throat> one day in my haste, I ran the car up on the lift, I drained the oil, took the plug out of the pan, set it down, washed it inside, washed it outside, and the last thing I did was change the filter and then put five quarts of oil in it. I did that, drove it back to the telephone company, Well, I never put the plug back in the pan. So the next day, the guy gets in the van, ruins the engine. Uh, it's obvious what the problem was. There was no, <laughs> all the oil ran out. $285 for the engine at that time for a used one. And I had mechanic friends by that point who said they did the work for free. So I told the dealer, take half my pay. And after about two weeks, I said, I, I can't live on half my pay. I can't live on 50 bucks a week until that engine's paid for. So let me stand around that coffee machine and smoke cigarettes and sell cars because you're open seven days a week. And I'm, I'm sure I can do that just as well as those guys. And he said, I mean, come on, you're 20 years old. You can't sell cars. I said, you're, and you're a full-time college student. I said, let, let me do it. Uh, give me a chance. And so he did. And uh, I was a top salesman the very first month. The very first month, and, from, and then on, I was a top salesman. But uh, my senior year in college, 1970, I made $29,010 selling cars. And I could have got a job teaching high school English and history for 5950 so I think sales are probably going to be it for me. I think I got to be a good salesman because of my upbringing and because of my education. I have a degree in religion and philosophy. I've been interested in religion. I understand how ethics works, morality works. I've always done things for the long run, ethically, morally, truthfully. And I've seen people do it the other way. Short timers are short timers. It's just if you, anything worthwhile takes time. And if you start taking shortcuts and stretching the truth, it's not going to end up well for you. So I think the biggest part of my success is just doing, trying to do business in an honest, ethical, moral way because I want to do it for the long run. You know, somebody said, you want to live a good life. That way, when you look back on it, as you get closer to the end, you can look back and enjoy it again. <laughs> you know, yeah. If you've, if, you've, if you've messed up for the last 50 years, what's... What are you looking forward, you know, you better be looking forward because there's not much to look back on, right? That's happy for you. And how about that dealership owner, that guy who was willing to give this young kid who screwed up a shot at sales? Well, he turned out to be more than a boss to David. And that, that was actually my second mentor, a guy named Dick Gray. He taught me about the power of positive thinking. I hadn't sold cars maybe only six months and he could see I was something. He took me under his wing, made me get the school calendar to figure out when are you going to graduate, when are you going to graduate. Well, I took 12 hours in the spring, 12 hours in the fall, and eight hours in the summer, so I was going to school year-round. He says, find out, you know, it's got to be August of 1970, right? He says, put that, put that on your mirror in lipstick. August 1970, you're going to be a college graduate. Look at it every day, and I did, and son of a gun, August of 1970, I graduated from college, so... He just made me believe in, believe in myself. 
the greatest saying uh, Douglas Edwards, whatever your mind can conceive and believe, you will achieve. You will achieve. So can you tell me about brain waves and how your, your alpha, beta, delta, and gamma, how your brain, you know, the alpha part of your brain is what's talking to you right now, but the beta part of my brain is I'm already thinking about what I'm going to be doing tomorrow, but even when I'm having this conversation, the, the delta part of your brain is a part that you can program that makes you, and then the gamma part is what just keeps our hearts and lungs working, you know, we don't, we don't think about. But he taught me that the, the alpha, beta, the delta the, is, is your subconscious, and that you use your conscious mind to program your subconscious mind. So if, if you are just so certain that you're gonna graduate from college in August of 1970, your conscious mind will let you do anything that would preclude that from happening. And you know, maybe it's mumbo jumbo, but I, it's, it's worked for me my whole life. It's worked for me. If I, if I wanted something and I, you know, and I, you have to set a date. Otherwise it's just a, you know, a wish or a dream. But a goal is something that has a date certain to it. I'm going to do this, or I'm going to achieve this, or I'm going to have that, or I'm going to be somewhere when, you know. And he thought the luckiest guy on the face of the earth was a captain of an ocean-going vessel. Because he could leave New York at 8 o'clock on Monday morning, and he's going to Le Havre, France. And he's got to be there at noon on Sunday. Now that's six and a half days he's crossing the ocean, and all he can see is water, you know? But he's got a plan. He knows that if he's here on Monday and here on Tuesday and here on Wednesday, this, this spot, you know, on Thursday, all he can see is water. But sure as heck, Sunday morning, the sun comes up and there on the horizon is La Harve. And setting a goal, doing each step along the way to get there, and son of a gun, when the time's up, there you are. In contrast to this, David's plan for when he graduated college fell apart right before his very eyes. And when we come back, more on David Wilson's story, our On Leadership segment, as always, brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network. And they're doing everything in their power to make small businesses grow into big ones. When we continue... David Wilson's story here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories. To hear all that we do, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Give us your email and we'll send you our five best stories of the week. You can listen to them or you can read them. We'll have them in transcript form. And now we continue with the story of an Iowa farm boy named David Wilson who became the number one salesman at a car dealership all the while in college. I graduated from college in Iowa in 1970 and a friend of mine, a guy named John Lancaster, and I were fraternity brothers at the University of Northern Iowa. And he was a car salesman, and I was a car salesman. We were going to open our own dealership. We were going to buy an Oldsmobile Datsun GMC dealership in Marshalltown, Iowa. We both had homes. We sold our homes to move to Marshalltown and get the money for the down payment on the dealership. And the deal blew up. And I moved to Phoenix. 
I thought I would get out of the carbons or do something different. But he didn't have a clue what he was going to do in Phoenix. I didn't really know. I had a, uh, a Mercury that I drove out there, dragging a U-Haul trailer. And when I got to Scottsdale, I'd never been there before. I'd never been to Arizona. And the rear end was starting to make a noise. So I said, i got to take that to the dealership. So I, I unhooked the U-Haul trailer in the Holiday Inn parking lot where I was staying. And I knew it was on Camelback Road. And I said, this is a big city. I'm a farm boy. So I'm driving down the Camelback Road in Phoenix. I find the Lincoln Mercury dealership. I pull in there, go to the service department. And the guy comes out and says, see, I can help you. I said, yeah, my rear end's making you know, noise. He drives around blocks. I think you got U-joint or rear ends out. I said, well, I've been working with Lincoln Mercury. I'm sure it's under warranty right now. I said, well, look at that big, that rental trailer hitch you got on the back of the bumper. That's probably what did it. He said, that won't be under warranty. I said, oh, come on, you're kidding. He said, no, I'm just, we got a little warranty problem here. I don't think I can get the Ford Motor Company to pay for that. I said, employees get a discount? He said, why, do you work here? I said, not yet. I left the car sitting in the drive. I walked over to the sales office and had a job there that afternoon as a salesman. Five years later, I owned the place. Five years later, I became the general manager and 25% partner there. And it would be this experience as a minority partner that taught him how to act as a majority partner. My partner there, the guy that owned 75%, I don't want to say, be disparaging, but he had a son that was only five, six years younger than me. I was never going to get the other 25% uh, or other 75%. So I guess he, I was never going to end up being the dealer, which is a good thing and a bad thing for me. Bad thing, I'd been there 10 years. I thought it was my career. Felt like my life was over to leave, but I knew I was never going to be satisfied being the junior partner. And, and, and he treated me like a junior partner. So on the one hand, I didn't like it. On the other hand, it was a great way for me to learn when you're the majority partner how do you treat the junior partner okay he didn't consider that there was never any votes because it was 75 25 so i learned to treat my 25 percent partners like they own 75 okay it's their business they're once they're there five or six or seven days a week they're responsible i trust them there's no votes now either you know that i let them they make the decisions and this decision to let other people make decisions can be hard for the founders of companies. Many dealers don't even have partners. They own it all, reap it all, and control it all. But David, a guy who empowers his junior partners who run the dealership so much so that in one case, he refused to visit his store for three years, knows that this seemingly counterintuitive decision is what's decided his success. We've been up to 20 dealerships, and we had a junior partner in every one. I'm a 25% owner. They earned their 25% out of sweat equity, okay? I would give them 10% of the stock, and they would get an annual dividend of 10%. With that, they could buy five more percent. And then with that 15% dividend, they could buy five more percent. And if they won the lottery, I didn't let them write a check for the 25%. I wanted to see how they acted, how they matured, how they grew into being a partner. We have a saying in our business, you can get dealeritis. So if a guy, you give him 10% and all of a sudden he joins two country clubs and it's going here and going there, you know, I, I don't need uh, an investor. I need someone who's going to run that particular dealership. So over a five-year period, they can earn 25%. And anytime during that five years, if it isn't working out, I just write them a check for what they paid, even though they bought it out of the profits. So 
It's helped me attract good people and retain really the cream of the crop, the best of the best. Our dealerships are wildly successful, high volume. We have beautiful facilities everywhere we are. We're in terrific markets, Southern California, Las Vegas, Nevada, Scottsdale, Arizona, and we have two dealerships in Mexico. So by bringing along good people, training them, you can only really, they call them a dealership. And I think it is like a ship in that there's got to be a captain and two captains sink a ship. So I let these guys run with the ball. They've worked with me for a long time. I don't buy a company and then advertise for a partner. All right. We grow our people. And when we have people that are ready, then I go out and try to find another opportunity, buy a dealership or, or start a new one somewhere and promote people from within. And that kind of drags everybody out because when we open a store or buy a new store, we might take a sales manager from one store to become the general manager. And then that, that sales manager, the guy who was behind him, gets to move up to sales manager of, of the old store. And the guy who was the assistant service manager somewhere becomes the service manager. It's showing by example that we're not kidding. We don't, you, you come to work for our company, do a good job. We're going to promote you from within and you get a chance to be, have a really successful life. The ladder of opportunity is so strong at Wilson Automotive Group that it's enabled them not to do something that almost everyone has to do. We have never advertised for an employee. We don't advertise for employees. People want to work for our company. We build a great culture from the inside out. I was taught you want to hire fathers or sons or husbands and wives because of conflicts. We have a lot of second and third generation people working for us. Father and son mechanics working side by side. Mother and daughter working in the business offices. Four or five brothers at some dealerships. In addition to the opportunity to work with your family and rise up within the company, this one other thing might have a little something to do with not having to advertise for people. We overpay, but we overexpect. So how can you overpay and be successful? Right? Well, you get five men to do seven men's job or six people to do eight people's job. Then you can pay them 10 or 15% more each and it still leaves 10 or 15% more for the business. And I'd rather pay overtime for good people than have part-timers coming and going and a lot of turnover. People have to have a living wage. And in California, it's, ex it's especially difficult to have a living wage here. So we don't, we don't pay anybody minimum wage, even starting people. We pay about 20% more than minimum wage just to start. And we want all of our employees to make 20 or 30% more than the average person in some other dealership. If you've got rent to pay and groceries to buy, you might have to be stealing the spare tire out of cars to sell it or the batteries or steal, you know, if you try to steal people's labor, they're gonna have to steal something from you to, to pay their rent, their light utilities, their kids' school clothes. So we want our employees not thinking about they're not going to have enough food to eat or be able to pay their rent. These people are better because on their day off, they're not looking for another job. They're going to the beach or taking their kids shopping or having a fun day or going on vacation. They're not out applying for another job. They show up early because they have a job they don't want to lose. They go home late because they have a job they don't want to lose. So they become more productive, more effective. So we have no turnover and nobody quits because it's very hard to get in. And they actually, they're earning the extra 20% we're paying them, and we're saving on employee costs. So we're very, very fortunate that we've been able to attract. That's probably, I believe, my biggest skill. I wasn't the world's greatest car salesman. I was good at it, 
I was a pretty good sales manager, pretty good finance manager, pretty good used car manager. But I think, I think my biggest skill is being able to recognize good people, hire them, train them, retain them, motivate them, compensate them, make them better than what they thought they could be. And when we come back, the final segment with David Wilson, and I know what you're thinking. What a guy. And my goodness, we need to hear from guys who run and own businesses like this so much more of. We need to hear from them. We need to hear about their stories because this is what makes American business hum, folks. People like David Wilson. When we come back, more of David's story here on Our American Stories. More after these messages. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we're back with the final portion of this remarkable feature in our On Leadership series, which, as always, is brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network, working hard to turn small businesses into big ones with policy that makes it easier for those small business owners to grow. And we're talking with a guy named David Wilson, an Iowa farm boy who went on to build the 13th largest car dealership in the country with dealerships in California, Arizona, Nevada, and Mexico, and employs over 2,000 people and produces more than $2 billion in annual sales. Let's continue with David. I saw other people, other managers and other dealers get jealous when some of their employees made a lot of money. Like, I gotta, cut, I gotta cut their pay because they're making too much money. And I've always had the philosophy, they can't make too much because I'm getting the last dime, all right? What a thought. Very rarely will someone decide to leave this awesome culture and go work somewhere else. But one person's story shows, if you're going to do that, you ought to think long and hard about it. I don't begrudge anybody that leaves our company for a promotion, okay? If they're a salesman ready to be a manager uh, or they're a manager and want to be the general sales manager, great. But if we don't have an opening, then you know they want to move on, okay. But it doesn't happen very often. But we have a rule. If you leave, if you leave for a lateral job, we're done. Goodbye. Goodbye. Cause, because, well, we, we, we hire somebody to take your place. And now that guy's important to me, okay? Plus, it's just downright offensive leave for something that ain't better well it is, it is well it is you know it's uh it doesn't happen very often that never happened for, it doesn't happen for a long time but but it, that, this was 20 years ago guy okay? didn't leave for it was a lateral position because they promised him more but you know he wasn't smart to realize that, that they were not telling him the truth either and after about 90 days he wanted to come back well no 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 you can come back and start as a salesman again so and he did and end up uh, being being a, a partner so but that's an example to everybody else. If you leave, guess what's going to happen? You're going to come back as not where you were, but back at the bottom of the line. But again, we're not holding any grudges. If you're a sharp guy, got some skill and talent and ability, honest and ethical, you, you're right back on the, on the food line. And, you know, if we can promote you, we're going to promote you. 
and see if you'll turn out to be a leader. I mean, the Army doesn't get their generals from Harvard. They, they'd learn by example. Every general started as, as a private, you know, and, and then became, you know, worked his way up the ranks, and that's, that's, how, that's how you become a leader. Our philosophy of leadership is leadership by example. You can't manage an army into battle. Nobody's going to follow a manager. People don't come in early or go home late for a manager. They don't miss their kid's softball game or, or be late for something. For a leader, they'll die. They'll lay down. You can't manage an army into battle, but you can lead one. You can lead one into battle. And thankfully, over my career, I've had many mentors and leaders who taught me how to lead. And I, I can see now that that's the only way to be successful in front of it. Is you have to be a leader. Managers have titles, okay? Managers have titles. And I've had employees, hey, I want to be the sales manager. I want to be the general manager. Okay, I could give you that title tomorrow, but until the person behind you and everybody in that department, when, when they start coming to you and ask you, hey, uh, we just had a power failure, what should we do now? Well, are the lights off across the street or is it just our building or what? So when the employees come to you and ask and they have a problem, they're already starting to recognize you as the leader. And I'm so proud of the people that I have as partners now. I'll pull into a place and I'll see them walking across the lot and they're picking up a, an empty coffee cup or an empty water bottle or a cigarette butt. They're picking it up because that, that's, they don't have to say anything. You just, everybody sees that sooner or later. If their office is clean, everybody's office is going to be clean. If the place is neat, the whole place is going to be neat. If they take care of their workstation, everybody's going to take care of their workstation. So you lead by example, people recognize your example and then ultimately you just kind of become a leader. Their over 2,000 employees have recognized David as their leader and in a very literal way too, beginning in the year 1988. It originally started, I had a Ferrari Testarossa and for Christmas my employees, well, I only had one dealership, my employees gave me a crystal Ferrari Testarossa. And I said, you know what, as much as I appreciate it, I don't need that. You know, it looks like it's a big paperweight on my desk. It's heavy, you know, and it was a lot of money. It's like $5,000. You know, I wish we'd just given that to charity. And so my secretary, who's been with me for 30 years or more now, said, uh, right, we're not going to do that anymore. We're going to start a scholarship in your name. So it was like 5000 bucks or 10000 bucks. Well, that's when we only had 100 employees. Well, now it's grown to, there's a way over a million dollars in that scholarship. And in one recent year, their employees collectively gave over $500,000 of their own money by their free will to help other Americans get to where they are and to honor their boss. What other company does this? And it goes to post-secondary education for kids that don't have parents. We reserve it for trade and technical schools. You know, there's enough lawyers. We, these, are, these are kids that, that, you know, a job is going to be good for them, but a career, mechanics make a lot of money, welders, plumbers, pipe fitters. So we want to invest in people who want to go to the trade and technical school and actually learn a trade, you know? And there's actually a high demand for workers in the trades. In David's automotive industry, there are 25,000 car technician positions open right now sitting empty ready for the taking it's a great job and in southern california in seven or eight years you could go to 
medical school and about eight years be a doctor and have $500,000 of student debt and make 120 grand a year your first year. In 10 years of being a technician, if you start at the bottom and are an eighth grade tech, you can make 120,000 bucks a year and with no, with no student debt. Now, the doctor might make more in his lifetime, but $110,000 a month is a pretty good job in California. And it's not just his employees who are giving. I've always been philanthropic. You know, I had a good friend, Chichi Rodriguez, uh, the golf pro, who told me a long time ago, says, Dave, uh, whatever it is you have, if you don't share it, you will never have enough of anything. Whatever it is you have, if you don't share it, if you're waiting till you have a lot so you can give some away, you're never going to have enough, right? So yeah, whatever it is you have, if you don't share it, you will never have enough of anything. So I learned early in life to care for other people, but that's about as succinctly put philosophy as I can think. But when I was younger, I used to donate my time because I didn't, didn't have money. I mean, I was involved with a lot of charities, Boys and Girls Club, Boy Scouts. Then as I became more successful, I started donating more money and less time. Now that I'm older, I get a lot more satisfaction out of donating time again. Now I'm still giving a lot of money, but I deliver Meals on Wheels here, a substitute driver in, in Laguna Beach, because I live here, I'm close, to pick up the food at the hospital, and if they call me, hey, somebody can't make it today, or make it next week, you know, okay, you know, it's, yeah, I, I, you know, somebody said, well, what, what do you, what do you, what do you get out of delivering Meals on Wheels as old people? I said, well, I'll give you an example. About five years ago, I was only 65, I'm running to the door in my shorts and tennis shoes, and I get knock on the door, and the lady's on her handheld portable phone and sitting in a recliner and looking through the screen door, and uh, I can hear she's talking on the phone, and I ring the doorbell and says, hey, lunch is here. And she's, oh, 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 I can hear her talking to this lady. Oh, oh, that nice young college boy is here with my lunch, honey. Uh, was here with my lunch. I got to go. And <laughs> she hangs up. I'm 65 years old. I still got blonde hair, but she says, that nice young college boy is here with my lunch. <laughs> she's like 90. It's all relative. <laughs> it's all relative, right. All relative. So, yeah, that, you know, that was a good day for me right there. I get more satisfaction out of my doing that than writing a check for 100,000 bucks or a million bucks now, so, which we still do. And what a voice, what a story. A farm boy from Iowa, born, as he said, with a golden spoon because he, well, he didn't have anything but a work ethic and an appreciation for everything he ever earned. Earned success. Arthur Brooks from the American Enterprise Institute writes a lot about that and that it brings happiness in the end. And you can hear it, a good life, a life well-lived, and how we do it. Well, David Wilson's teaching us right there. Our On Leadership series, as always, brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network. We've had Brad Anderson, former CEO of Best Buy, Ed Renzi, who went from making 85 cents an hour and working 100 hours a week at McDonald's to becoming McDonald's CEO. Ray Dalio, Faye Vincent, Dina Dwyer-Owens, Bear Bryant's story, Vince Lombardi's too, our on leadership series, here on Our American Stories, and today it was David Wilson's story. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear all that we do. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And by the way, just give us your email, and we'll send you our five best stories each week. You can listen to them, or you can read them. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org.
Org. By the way, if you have a story about someone you know, a great leader, a civic leader, a faith leader, a sports leader, send your story ideas to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our Random Acts of Kindness segment. You can find all sorts of these uplifting stories all over this great country and at randomactsofkindness.org. It's an inspiring resource and a great one to share with your kids. And also make sure to leave your story there. Our first story is from Memphis, where we found some kind cops and a young man with a very clear sense of priorities. It's a heartwarming video already viewed thousands of times. Memphis police officers brightening the holidays for an 11-year-old burglary victim. Tonight, the officers are talking about going beyond the call of duty. WMC Action News 5's Jason Miles live tonight with their response. Jason? Those officers work here at the Crump Station Police Precinct. They hope what they did inspires others this holiday season. You see on the news what Memphis police often encounter while on the job. 11-year-old Tontravian Campbell is proof that it's not all bad. Officers replaced the Xbox stolen during a burglary at his family's home. When we asked the the child if he was going to get a new Xbox for Christmas, he said, no, my mom doesn't have that kind of money. And... um, All the money she makes goes to pay the bills. Officers from Crump Station's Charlie Shift talked to us about the gesture, which went viral Sunday thanks to this Facebook video. This house was burglarized not too long ago, uh, today, while these folks were at church. They say Tontravian was more concerned about his mother than the stolen Xbox, which is what impressed them the most. Just to be able to alleviate some of his stress, just for that day and actually help their family when in this time, like Christmas, it, it really was an overwhelming feeling. Contravian actually posted a comment on the WMC Action News 5 Facebook page, writing in part, quote, am so thankful. His mother added, quote, I'm truly grateful for the generosity that was given to my son. Policing is not really about just going into dangerous situations. It's definitely about helping out the community as well. Something one 11-year-old found out firsthand. And officers bought that new Xbox and three games at the GameStop store in Midtown. The store donated an additional controller. Reporting live from the Crump Station Precinct, Jason Miles, WMC Action News 5. And our second story comes from CBS's Steve Hartman, who meets some of the most interesting and some of the kindest people in this country. 
For a deaf person like Ibby Paracha of Leesburg, Virginia, getting the drink you want at Starbucks can be a tall order. But Ibby says not here. Thanks to a barista who recently did something truly Hello. grande. And when I came in, the first thing she did was she wrote the note. So I thought maybe she had a question for me or something. But it really wasn't a question at all. And as I read through it, it shocked me. He immediately posted this picture of the note, which read, I've been learning ASL, American Sign Language, just so you can have the same experience as everyone else. What can I get for you today? That barista is Crystal Payne. Two Trenta iced coffee. She's new here. In fact, she'd only waited on Ibby once before deciding to go home, go on the internet, and learn sign language for him. Maybe I spent like three or more hours on it. Getting ready to take one order? Yeah. If he's a regular and I want to make that connection with my regulars, I should be able to at least ask him what he wants to drink. What you want drink? Today, Crystal knows everything she needs to wait on Ibby. Caramel frappuccino, please. And that really is the extent of their interaction. To Crystal, it's no big deal. But to Ibby, who says navigating a hearing world is often frustrating, what Crystal did was a wonderful gesture that he will never forget. He even saved the note. It's something that was very inspirational, so I wanted to, to keep it in the frame. Sometimes, customer service gets a bad rap, and it's often well-deserved. Hi, what can I get for you today? But there are those frontline workers who go above and beyond, not for a tip or because the boss is watching, nice. but because kindness is who they are, and the customer, all they care about. And it's just something that really gave me genuine happiness. Even now? Yeah, even now, still smiling. (laughs) And finally, here's a story about how regularly ordering a pizza saved a man's life. In the middle of a very busy Saturday night, the staff at this Domino's Pizza on Silverton Road realized that they hadn't gotten an order from one of their favorite customers in almost two weeks. So they went to check on him, and sure enough, he was having a medical emergency. So he always orders online, so it pretty much just comes up on our main line. Every couple days, Sarah Fuller's staff gets an order from one of their regulars, 48-year-old Kirk Alexander. But over the weekend, it dawned on everyone that they hadn't seen Alexander's name pop up for a long time. A couple different people had pointed it out to me, and so Saturday night was when I finally decided to look up to see when his last order what happened to be, and it was 11 days ago, which is not normal at all. Sarah sent a delivery driver to Alexander's house, and something was clearly wrong. He called us back and said that, you know, he knocked and heard the TV, but he didn't have an answer, and so we gave him his phone number, and then he tried to call. The staff called 911, and when deputies arrived, they heard Alexander inside yelling for help. They forced their way in and found him on the floor having a medical emergency. I bang on the door, but he doesn't always answer. Neighbor Robert Lalonde knows that Alexander's had health problems, so he keeps an eye on him, too. He was also worried that something was wrong, so he's grateful that Domino's stepped in. That's awesome. That is awesome. You know, most people just take it for granted. Yeah. yeah, and that's that's really cool. These Domino's employees are always on the move, trying to make and deliver food fast. But they say they're never too busy to help someone in need. We're always looking out for everyone out there and caring for our customers especially. 
And early yesterday morning, paramedics responded with deputies as well. They rushed Alexander to Salem Hospital, and he is still there tonight in fair condition. Live in Salem, Jamie Wilson, Fox 12, Oregon. And there you have it, from all around this great country, from coast to coast, it's constantly happening. You just never hear about it. But here on Our American Stories, we do it every week. Random Acts of Kindness, and you can go to randomactsofkindness.org. Look for stories like this. Better still, post your stories there. And go to ouramericannetwork.org to catch all of our stories and all of our random acts of kindness. More after these messages. stories and our next story is a story about love and family faith and freedom it's brought to us by our own greg hengler and the good folks at the harriet tubman underground railroad visitor center in church creek maryland let's take a listen on july 4th 1776 a marvelous experiment in democracy was conceived With a firm reliance on the protection of the divine providence, its noble, if imperfect, parents pledged their lives, fortunes, and sacred honor to bring to fruition this heroic idea. A new government in which all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But decades later, Deep within the backbone of the American economy, a large protruding tumor was causing unimaginable misery. Here's historian James Horton. By 1840, cotton was the most valuable thing this entire nation exported. No, it was more valuable than everything else this nation exported put together. By 1860, the worth of slaves The dollar value of slaves was greater than the dollar value of all the banks, all the railroads, all the manufacturing facilities of this nation put together. Slavery was no sideshow in American history, it was the main event. Slave owners have rightfully earned their wicked reputation. Strangely, the largest pro-slavery institution, the one that made slavery law and kept it in order, has consistently been absent from the abolition educators' list of evildoers. Don't forget that these people were held on the plantation by more than just the white families on the plantation. But ultimately, if you had tried to defeat the institution of slavery, you would have had to defeat the power of the plantation, the power of the local government, the power of the state government, and ultimately the power of the national government. 
that slavery was protected by the full force of the United States of America. So that when you think about people running away or people striking out against the institution, they are in, embarking on a pretty ambitious uh, journey. That journey was conducted on tracks. Those tracks were part of a system of escape that became known as the Underground Railroad. But like grape nuts, the Underground Railroad was neither underground, nor was it a railroad. Here's Harriet Tubman's scholar, James McGowan. There was an often told story that it started around the mid-1830s after the building of the railroads in the, uh, started in this country. Uh, some slave catchers were chasing a slave, and I believe the area was Ohio. And uh, he the slave ran away into a wooded area. And uh, the slave catchers followed him there, and uh, he suddenly disappeared. It was as if he ran away on an underground railroad. Well, it became a joke, but the joke caught on. When the uh, abolitionists and the anti-slavery people got involved with helping slaves escape, they took that term on. And uh, those who were helping slaves escape, they called conductors. These were the people who went right into slave territory and uh, got the slaves and brought them out. And when they brought them out, they brought them to places where they could get food and shelter. And these places were houses or barns where abolitionists and anti-slavery people were at. And they called these houses stations. And the people who lived in these houses and who provided this uh, information and this stuff, they called them station masters. And then others who became involved, like this, for example, they contributed money. They called them stockholders. And those who watched, they called them pilots. Any term that they used in the railroad, they used to describe the, the people who worked at the Underground Railroad. In an effort to survive and maintain better lives, enslaved Americans turned to someone they already trusted and relied upon throughout their lives. Steal away to Jesus. Pennsylvania had been chartered by William Penn in 1682 and heavily settled by the Quakers, a Christian organization who had condemned the practice of slavery. With the religious revivals of the 17 and 1800s, called Great Awakenings, abolition spread into Delaware. Here's historian Bradley Skelcher. There was a belief that American colonists had lost their spirituality and religious itinerant ministers traveled around this region preaching the gospel. As a part of that Great Awakening, more and more people began to encourage their fellow church members to question the morality of owning their fellow human beings. In the end, enslaved Americans ran not so much from the cruelty of their master, but toward that most fundamental of all human rights, freedom. As Americans, we want to think of ourselves as really priding ourselves on personal freedom and priding ourselves on being willing to help other people achieve freedom. And so the Underground Railroad in that regard becomes the all-American story, the story of those who refuse to accept slavery and those who refuse to accept the denial of other people's freedom. Sheep, sheep, don't you know the road? Yes, my Lord, I know. 
Prepare yourself. We are about to go back in time and walk in the footsteps of one of America's greatest heroes. And I prayed to God to make me strong and able to fight. And that's what I've always prayed for ever since. Harriet Tubman. We all know her name. But who was this woman? Harriet Tubman was born into slavery in 1822 and raised in eastern Maryland with four brothers and four sisters in a 20-by-20-foot slave cabin with no beds and a dirt floor. She suffered decades of beatings, neglect, and fear and saw three of her four sisters sold on the auction block, never to see them again. As strong as she was, she was also fragile. After getting her forehead split open from a two-pound weight thrown by a slave owner at a village store, Harriet struggled with frequent seizures and blinding headaches. Name your price. In 1849, Harriet's slave master, Edward Brodus, recognized her diminished capacity and tried unsuccessfully to sell her. I don't know, Edward. She don't look too healthy to me. In spite of this, she began to pray for her master. Harriet's faith was the foundation that everything in her life was built on. Not an abstract idea of Christianity, but an active, constant communication with the Almighty. She sought her master's conversion. Oh, dear Lord, change that man's heart and make him a Christian. I prayed all night long for my master till the first of March. And all the time he was bringing people to look at me and trying to sell me. One day, to her horror, she learned that she would be sent to a chain gang in the far south. The tone of her prayers shifted. So I began to pray. Oh, Lord, if you ain't never going to change that man's heart, kill him, Lord, and take him out the way. Edward, let me help! Edward! Edward! The prayer proved prophetic. (laughs) Tubman's 48-year-old master died suddenly one week after the prayer, and she was filled with remorse. Oh, I would give the world full of silver and gold if I had it to bring that poor soul back. I would give everything. But he was gone. I couldn't pray for him no more. There was one of two things I had a right to. Liberty or death. If I couldn't have one, I would have the other. And when we come back, more on the life of Harriet Tubman. This is Our American Stories.
precious Lord, take my hand, lead me on, help me stand. I am tired, I am weak, I am worn. Through the storm, through the night, lead me on to the light. Take my hand, precious Lord, lead me home. And we return to the story of Harriet Tubman. And by the way, you can catch all of our work at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Let's continue with the story. In 1849, at the age of 27, she heard the Lord's voice urging her to flee northward. After an initial attempt to escape failed, when her two brothers lost courage and forced her to return, she set out again two days later by herself, hiding during daylight hours and traveling by night, fixing her eyes on the North Star for direction until she made it to Pennsylvania's free soil. This 100-mile escape on foot north through the Underground Railroad took a week. What makes Harriet so unique is that after she escaped, she did the unthinkable. She went back. Over 11 years, she made 13 return trips to the South and helped deliver over 300 family and friends to freedom. Yes, I made my way out of slavery and into the promised land. I boarded that train and found my freedom. But I realized straight away that my freedom meant nothing if my family wasn't free neither. That's why I come back, for my beloved, for my blood. And when I come back and my family can't make that train, I don't waste a trip. I bring friends and friends of friends back to the promised land. And I can say what most conductors can't say. I never ran my train off the track and I never lost a passenger. Harriet never lost because, as she said, her God maintains a perfect record. In December 1850, Tubman executed her first mission, the rescue of her niece, Kasaya, and her two children, a son and an infant daughter, who were scheduled to be sold on the auction block. With the help of Kasaya's free husband, John, Harriet arranged an unexpected and daring escape. On the steps of the Dorchester County Courthouse in Maryland, the crowd gathered that day. Josiah was led up the block in front of those old courthouse steps. The bidding started. Josiah's husband, John, stood in the crowd. Their eyes met. And John raised his hand and bid on the woman and children he loved. John won the bid 
but he had no money. God must have been watching. Just then, the auctioneer up and decided to go to lunch. What's more, he forgot to chain Kasaya up. Psst, now go, go. Kasaya, John, and their children hid in the nearby house of a white woman. They waited till nightfall and sprinted to the waterfront. Together, they boarded a small boat. Mother, father, and children in a silent sailboat crossing the wide Chesapeake. They hid in Baltimore five weeks until Harriet got them train tickets to Philadelphia. They eventually made it all the way to Canada, safe from the long arm of slavery. She always made rescue attempts in the winter, but avoided going into plantations. Instead, she waited for escaping slaves, to whom she had sent messages, to meet her eight or ten miles away. Slaves would leave plantations on Saturday nights, and because of the Sunday Sabbath, they wouldn't be missed until Monday morning. Only then did their reward signs get posted, which would then be taken down immediately by men Tubman had hired. Tubman also carried a gun, a six-shooter, and was not afraid to use it. She felt her revolver offered some protection from the slave catchers and their dogs. And Tubman demanded strict obedience from her fugitives. A slave who returned to his master would likely be forced to reveal information that would compromise her mission. One time, a man gave out the second night. His feet were so swollen. He couldn't go any further. He'd rather go back and die if he must. I said, I was going to lay a bullet in him if he didn't move. Henry, get up. We's got to move on. Remember, Henry, dead Negroes tell no tales. When he heard that, (laughs) he jumped up right away and went as well as anybody. Henry made it to freedom. And years later, Harriet was asked whether she would actually kill a reluctant escapee. Yes, because if he was weak enough to give out, he'd be weak enough to betray us all and all who helped us. And do you think I let so many die just for one coward man? So the Lord said, go down. Harriet Tubman earned the nickname Moses because just as Moses followed the voice of God while leading the Israelites out of Egyptian slavery, she too led so many of her people from bondage in the house of slavery to the promised land of freedom along the Underground Railroad. The world, see, don't make sense. It's broken. So the slaves, we take on another perspective. We see by faith. Our faith means everything. There's more to reality than a person's eyes can see. 
you hear this faith in the spiritual songs, a weeping, a praying, a pouring out of emotion and pain, and somehow of hope, even though we enslaved, chained, whipped, hope still lives. She used spiritual songs as coded messages, warning escaping slaves of danger or directing them toward a safe path. Harriet felt God protected and hid her during the time she had to lie in a wet swamp or bury herself in a potato field. When God provided safe passage, she always gave him the glory. I heard God speaking to me, saw his angels, and I saw my dreams. There were times I knew things for they was going to happen. I could see trouble coming, and I could go the other way. There was times I fell into sleep but was completely awake, more aware than when I was awake. Things I can't even describe, child. Things I can't even say. And when we come back, the rest of the story, Harriet Tubman's story, here on Our American Stories. final segment of this Harriet Tubman story. Let's pick up where we last left off. In one instance, in 1856, the word spread through the countryside, she's here! And four young men answered the call. What you men want is a bounty hunter. As they were making their escape, they saw posters with a $2,000 reward for their capture on them. As they made their way through the woods... Harriet suddenly stopped. God told me to stop, so I stopped. He told me to leave the road and turn left. We came to a stream, but no way across. The young men, they said it was too deep, the water too cold. And I said no such thing as too cold and walked in. Water made it up to my shoulder. But then I came out the other side. The boys followed. Later, Harriet learned that a group of desperate men seeking the $2,000 reward had been waiting on the path they were traveling and planned to seize them. 
If she had not responded to God's still small voice, they would have been captured. And the $40,000 reward slave owners posted for her capture was always in the back of her mind. Harriet learned about the posters, which described her age, height, and that she couldn't read or write. Once in a train station, Harriet heard two men talking about her. They were trying to decide if she was the woman in the poster. Harriet was carrying a book. She opened it and pretended to read. The men then decided that it couldn't be her. Tubman became a friend of many of the best-known abolitionists and their sympathizers. White religious crusader John Brown referred to her in his letters as one of the best and bravest persons on this continent, General Tubman as we call her. Here's professor of constitutional law Paul Finkelman and James Horton. The people who are involved in the Underground Railroad are breaking a federal law. Uh, What they would have, of course, made the argument, and they did it all the time, is that there was a higher law, the law of God. It was dangerous to be involved with the Underground Railroad, no matter what color you were. I mean, there are white people who spent years of their lives in jail. Here's Tubman scholar Judith Bentley, historian Clara Small, and again, James McGowan discussing Tubman's relationship with one of the most prominent figures in the history of the Underground Railroad, a devout white Christian named Thomas Garrett. When she started going back to bring more people uh, out of the Eastern Shore, uh, she needed financial backing, she needed places to stay, she needed contacts, and Garrett was that, that contact. Thomas Garrett had money, he had social position, and as a result, he was giving Harriet money. He also gave her uh, passageway and shoes, and clo- as well as clothing and food. He would tell this story in his letters to two ladies in Scotland who were sending money over to Harriet Tubman, how she came to his house and practically demanded money. She would say to him, for example, well, I know you've got money for me because God said so. And he would tease her. He would say, well, how do you know I got money for you, Harriet? You know, I give my money to most of the black people here in Wilmington, and I don't have any money. She said, oh, no, you've got money for me, and you've got shoes because God told me. And he would be nonplussed at her saying this, but he, he would have it. God bless you, Miss Garrett. said this of Harriet. I never met any person of any color who had more confidence in the voice of God as spoken direct to her soul. And her faith in a supreme power truly was great. During the Civil War, Tubman served as a nurse, laundress, and spy with the Union forces. She taught freed black women how to make things that they could sell in order to earn a living. Harriet Tubman would not be satisfied until every person could experience true freedom. After the war, she made her home in Auburn, New York, and despite numerous honors, spent her last years in poverty until a white woman named Sarah Bradford visited Harriet and listened to her life story. In 1869, Sarah Bradford published Harriet's biography, Scenes in the Life of Harriet Tubman, and another in 1886, The Moses of Her People. All the money they earned went to Harriet. Finally, on March 10, 1913, 
the 93-year-old Harriet Tubman caught pneumonia and knew the end was near. She asked her friends and family to gather around her bed, as she had done so many times before. Harriet raised her voice and gave instruction to everyone. Sing, swing low, sweet chariot to me. Swing low, sweet chariot. The eyes of those in the room brimmed with tears, and the people tried to stifle sobs as they sang softly. Just as her friends and family sang the final verse, she whispered her final words, I go to prepare a place for you. Flags flew at half-mast in Auburn. She was buried with military honors in Fort Hill Cemetery in New York. Booker T. Washington delivered the eulogy. Many letters were found in Harriet's room after she passed. One letter had been refolded so many times that it had almost fallen apart. It was from the great leader of the abolitionist movement and Harriet's friend, Frederick Douglass. Here's what he wrote. Most that I have done and suffered in the service of our cause has been in the public, and I received much encouragement at every step of the way. You, on the other hand, have labored in a private way. I have had the applause of the crowd and the satisfaction that comes of being approved by the multitude, while most that you have done has been witnessed by a few trembling, scared, and foot-sore bondmen and women, whom you have let out of the house of bondage, and whose heartfelt, God bless you, has been your only reward. The midnight sky and the silent stars have been the witness of your devotion to freedom and of your heroism. Here's Jay Meredith, whose great-great-grandfather owned the village store where Harriet Tubman got her forehead split open from a two-pound weight thrown by the slave owner. Anybody that would know anything about Harriet Tubman would have to um, recognize her as a true American hero. And here is the main reason why, is that if you think about Harriet Tubman, you're going to see an African-American woman in 1849, okay, when women had no rights, black women had less than no rights. She was five feet tall. She was illiterate. Again, she was enslaved. And she was able to accomplish feats that nobody else could accomplish. And to me, how can you not admire somebody like that? You know, I mean, you've got a woman who has everything in the world going against her. Everything. And I tell people when they come in here, you know, whether you're white, whether you're black, no matter, even if you have prejudices, if you look at an individual like a Harriet Tubman, you know, you have to admire, even sitting here telling the story, it gives me goosebumps. It is here, through Harriet Tubman's work in the Underground Railroad, where we can see both fugitive and free Americans, white and black, drawn by a cause that compelled them to come together. There have been times in American history when we have been able to form alliances cross racial lines. The fact is that we don't hear as much about that as we ought to. And it's important that we do. 
because it's awfully hard to imagine that we can form racial alliances in the 21st century unless we understand that there's a strong tradition that we can draw upon. And although there have always been hostilities, there have always been difficulties across racial lines, there have also always been some people who were able and willing to put their fortunes and their lives on the line for other people. And I think that's a tradition that we need to draw on. That's a tradition of the Underground Railroad. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. Roll, Jordan, roll. My soul arise in heaven, Lord, for the year when Jordan rolls. Everybody say, roll, Jordan, roll. Roll, Jordan, roll. My soul arise in heaven, Lord, for the year when Jordan rolls. Roll, Jordan, roll. Solar rise in heaven, Lord, for the year when Jordan rose.